Let's pray and we'll uh, dive into this thing, this adventure of church history. Father, we thank you so much for the chance to look back on your faithfulness to your people in the past. And we pray, uh, just as we always uh, desire when we do that, we pray that we would be humbled and inspired and uh, convicted and uh, pray that there would be lessons that we learn. And especially when we think of uh, something as massive and influential as the Catholic Church, we pray that you would help us to think rightly. Appreciate the blessings that we receive from the Catholic Church and in, at the same time not be blind to the, the weaknesses of it. And uh, just give us the right blend of uh, truth and love as we relate to uh, Roman Catholics in our culture and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to launch us off, we're going to start here with a flyover of church history. This is a kind of a key, key events in church history. So you've got Jesus' birth. So when you're transitioning from Old Testament to Jesus, uh, his birth uh, changed everything. So there's a B.C. and an A.D. because of Jesus. Although, ironically, he was born in 5 B.C. Uh, they, they were just a bit off at the beginning. A.D. 33, Jesus crucified, resurrected, and Pentecost, really important. So the redemptive acts that took place there at the end of Jesus' life. A.D. 70, Philip talked about two weeks ago. And then A.D. 325, uh, Michael Stalker talked about last week, important as uh, the Trinity is being uh, formulated and what defined orthodoxy was being uh, articulated. 451, another very important council, which I mentioned today because Leo the Great features in our story. And then the fall of Rome, significant also because it featured, well, it's just significant in the history of the world, and it's also significant when it comes to uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Charlemagne is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. We'll talk about that important in our story. And then we get to 1517, uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which we celebrated with eating pig last night, which was wonderful. And we think about as we get to October 31st coming up. Azusa Street, we're Pentecostals, or we're continuationists, and so we, we celebrate God's moves of the Spirit when we get to the 20th century. So 1906 is the first wave of the Spirit, as they've been called. Not the first example of a Reformed uh, continuationist, but significant move of God. And uh, ironically, we won't talk about this in this class, but all three waves of the Spirit come out of California. It's a, it's a strange convergence of God's providence there in the state of California. And then you get to 1987, U2's Joshua Tree, one of the significant albums in the U2 <laughs> discography, which you should note. Uh, and then 1992, this church is planted as Community Life Church, which of course then became Sovereign Grace Church, which became Cornerstone Fellowship Church, but all of those were the same church. All right, so that's, that's flyover. So when you, when you get to the Roman Catholic Church, it's, I mean, really, the Roman Catholic, you could, without exaggeration, say it starts where Michael Stalker stopped last week at the Council of Nicaea, and it continues to the present. So it's a helpful, convenient way to get all of church history in a three-week class. But that also means that we have 1,700 years to cover today. So that's why we prayed at the beginning. So when you're talking about the Catholic Church, a lot of ways you could get at it, but really it's the Pope that is that is the centerpiece of the Catholic Church. If there's no if there's no Pope, there's no Roman Catholic Church by any recognizable uh, uh, impression. And so we you have to understand the rise of the Pope. It's a little bit uh, mysterious how we got from pastors, you know, simple pastors like uh, Timothy and Titus, uh, or 
apostles, as you could say, uh, apostles and elders in the New Testament. And then you get a pope at some point uh, several centuries later. It's not always easy to uh, say this caused this, which caused this, which caused that. But here are some, here are some things that we can know. So pope, uh, just as a term, it means father. So it was, a, it was a term that was often used for church leaders at the time. So that's not unusual. But then you had this, uh, this office of bishop, which, which arose fairly early in the church, actually, in the first century. So we think of offices in the church as uh, elders and deacons, and some would argue for the office of apostle. We're not going to worry about that today. But, but basically deacons and elders, elders oversee churches, and then sometimes elders have responsibilities for other churches. But the bishop role was, a, was essentially a pastor, kind of like an uber pastor. So a guy who was significant in his leadership ability, his organizational ability, his theological knowledge. And so people would naturally go to him for advice, and he would sometimes think, you know, I like this. I want more of this. And so what happened was some of those bishops began to say that, you know what, I think more of you should think of me as your bishop. And so the Roman bishop in particular really felt that way. Um, So by the end of the first century, the guys who were Roman bishops um, really felt that they had more, uh, they were the greater among equals. That phrase pops up a lot in these kinds of discussions, greater among equals. So we know that technically we're equal. I'm just greater than you. So that's what that phrase means. And so Rome was kind of a natural centerpiece for a bishop to feel that way because Rome itself was such a a powerful city, you know, the capital of the Roman Empire, which at that time was still standing. Um, And you had people like Peter and Paul um, who made their way to Rome, um, died there, spent years there. You had uh, the epistle to the Romans actually had a a kind of underscoring of, look how important we are. The most important letter ever written was written to us. Um, So those things kind of converge. And so you you get to Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch, a different city. Um, Antioch, several hundred miles to the east um, in what is now Turkey. But uh, Ignatius uh, captures for us what the bishop was in the eyes of at that time. So I'm going to read this quote. You have that quote, I believe. So see that you all follow the bishop. So this, this means not the pastor, but the bishop. And generally, there was one bishop in, in a city. Um, well, um, Often there was one, one bishop in one city. Actually, there were, there were more than, in larger cities, there were more than one bishop. But these, the point is, these guys uh, weren't simply over a single church. Um, there were a lot of churches that would have looked to them for uh, leadership. So Ignatius, now this is AD 100, so we're kind of early here. So see that you follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery as you would the apostles. So, I mean, did you catch that? So the bishop, follow him like Christ. The elders, you follow like apostles. And that you reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And that doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. That means church universal. It is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast. Lord's Supper, that is. Um, It's not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast, but whatsoever he shall approve of, 
that is also pleasing to God so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. Very strong statement. I mean, that's, uh, in many ways, that's more authority than even the apostles themselves would, would, um, would call for themselves. But there you are, that's 100. Fast forward to the 400s. So in the, more, in the mid 400s, you have this, uh, this pattern of significant bishops in many cities. The Roman bishops were significant, and there's an interesting uh, just pattern in the, in the Roman bishops. Uh, you know, when you think of Romans, you think of um, uh, uh, views of civil governments and skill and organization and administration. Um, the Roman Empire was actually a well-administered empire, and what's interesting is what you find in the Roman bishops is they actually had that same kind of administrative skill, so sometimes they weren't the, the speculative, uh, profound theologians that you had in the East. So a lot of the Trinitarian controversies actually happened in the East. They were there in the West, but the West, what you, what you had was guys made clear, theologically true statements, like Leo the Great, as we'll see, but they also had this ability to organize, and so that tended to expand their influence. And that's, so you get that with Leo the Great. So he, he's called the Great because he was uh, a significant leader, famous in history, and there's a lot of other Leos that follow behind him. And this is, this is the first one. This is Leo the Great, not the other guys who just took his name. So he's in the mid-400s. Um, important figure, lots of things. One of the, uh, theologically, why he's important is he is, he is one of the first to articulate uh, the... Christ being one person in two natures idea in very clear terms. So his Leo's tomb, a tome, sorry, Leo's tome, um, is, a, is a letter that he wrote to um, an, a, another bishop in the East and actually articulated really clearly what became essentially the Chalcedonian uh, definition or the Chalcedonian creed. Uh, so, and that, that's distinct because you have a, just cl- lots of clear expressions on that idea, one person, two natures, when it comes to Jesus Christ. And that's not a simple idea to articulate. So he was helpful to this guy in the East. And the fact that he, this, uh, he was, uh, the fact that the guy in the East called for help from Leo actually uh, elevated Leo's stature. And then you get to um, a political event. So Attila the Hun comes to Rome, wants to destroy the city. At that time, the government, the civil government in Rome is not, is not doing that great. It's, uh, it's weakening. Of course, you see the year 452, 469 is sometimes, or 476 is sometimes dated as the end of the Roman Empire. So at this time, the church actually became more powerful because the civil government was weakening. And so it was actually Leo the Great that went out to Attila the Hun and persuaded him not to destroy the city. And that, that gave Leo the Great all kinds of stature and, eleva- and elevated importance. Significant guy. But then you get to Gregory the Great. Um, 100 years later, he's called Gregory the Great. A lot of other Gregories that follow him, but he's the first one, so you call him the Great. So in 590, he becomes Pope uh, because it's not a job he wanted. In fact, he he did a lot of things to get out of that job. But when he was given the job, he he was whole hog in it. Uh, he, He did not hold back a bit. So he was uh, committed to true pastoral care. So he actually wrote a book called The Book of Pastoral Care, uh, used by priests in in very helpful ways. Gregorian chant, if you've heard that phrase, that comes from Pope Gregory. So he brought um, um, development of the liturgy, big deal. But he did also expand the power of the Roman bishop um, significantly. So again, through his organizational acumen um, and through... um, through his theological skill, actually. 
he, he was prolific. He preached a lot. He wrote a lot. One thing kind of interesting with him is he was very devoted to Augustine, but in a very unhelpful way. So we look at Augustine and we say, wow, what a, what a, what a helpful person he is to help you understand the Bible, the Bible being the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God. Augustine really helpful, but yet sometimes Augustine totally wrong. He looked at Augustine as inspired and authoritative. And so whatever, so one author said, whatever Augustine speculated about, Gregory preached as, as doctrine. So purgatory actually was a specula- speculative uh, idea in Augustine. But when you get to Gregory, it is, it is, it is doctrine from God. Um, purgatory is a terrible idea. Um, so that's, that's Gregory the Great. Um, just as one, well, skip that, skip that. Eventually, the rise of the Pope becomes uh, to such an extent that when you get to the 1800s, I realize this is much later in our timeline, but get to the 1800s, that's when the doctrine of papal infallibility is fully articulated, which means that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra out of his office, out of, out of the, his official role as Pope for the church, whenever he does that, it's infallible. And infallible means there, there's, there's, there's no falsehood in it. And in fact, they would even say there can't be falsehood in it. So it's a, it's a really profoundly unhelpful idea. Uh, but that, that's 1869. But the, but the point, um, or one, one thing to remember about that is that that idea lived large in the Catholic Church in all the centuries leading up to that. It was just articulated in 1869 at the First Vatican Council. All right, so go back to Gregory the Great in the mid-400s. The Catholic Church at that time is developing, is growing. It's spreading well outside of Rome and Italy. And so by the time you get to, we're, gonna, we're just going to say 800, because that's the, uh, the crowning of Charlemagne. When you get to the end of the, eight, when you get to 800, uh, you have all, those, all the, some of the key ideas that we think of as Roman Catholic um, doctrine or practices, are, they're there. So celibate priests, you know, priests can't, can't marry. That idea is, it's been entrenched for centuries, but it's, it's fully there. The Pope and his, his theological uh, stature, very much there. The monastic movement, which actually started in the 100s and 200s, is fully developed, um, but that's very much there. So that's, so what, even though they would, they would have, it would look physically a little bit different than the modern Roman Catholic Church, in a lot of intents and purposes, by, by the time you get to the, um, the, the middle the middle Middle Ages, um, the Catholic Church as we know it is really present. But we get to 800, and this this uh, event illustrates a lot of things that were were kind of common. So you have Charlemagne, ruthless, powerful, terrible leader, terrible in the sense of what he did to people, slaughtered a lot of people, wanted to just take over the world as all leaders did for, for much of history. And so, and he was aware though, some prick in his conscience. So he was aware he needed he needed to sanitize. Uh, to sanctify his reign, that he had done a lot of terrible things, and, that, and he wasn't really—he didn't want to go down in history as this just terrible guy. Timely problem because Pope Leo the Third, again, yeah, if you want to identify yourself with a previous pope, oftentimes you took their name when you became pope. So Pope Leo the Third is the third—he's the third guy to do that. Facing strong opposition, and this is this is really strong opposition. They had they had. Um, uh, Take, uh, removed his eyes, and they had cut off part of his tongue. So this is significant opposition uh, to leadership. Fortunately, we don't deal with things in that way 
most of the time today. But that's, uh, that's the opposition Pope Leo was experiencing. So he needed political help. He needed political backing. Charlemagne need, needed some way to, to, to make his reign kind of holy and washed clean. So they said, hey, let's get together and let's resurrect the Holy Roman Empire. You become, so, so Pope Leo is going to crown Charlemagne, the, the first uh, of this Holy Roman Empire, sorry, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So then Pope Leo is going to get all the political backing he needs. Charlemagne is going to get all, the, all the, the, the blessing and forgiving that he needs. And so that's a, that's a beautiful relationship. And so that blend of political power and the papacy, that became a very awkward dance throughout the rest of history. And, and, it lead, and up to that point as well. So a lot of times emperors, uh, an emperor at that time didn't, didn't mean like uh, in, the old, in the old days, back in the actual Roman Empire, whatever Caesar said, that's what happened, period, throughout the entire empire. But when you get to the Holy Roman Empire, it was kind of a, you have a lot of kings, and so that king who was the emperor was the greater among equals again. So yes, we're all kings of our own lands, but I'm, I'm just greater than you are, that's all. And so you had... Um, uh, so that's the political situation. The, pap- the popes at that time um, at times needed political backing, and so they would, they would appeal to the Roman emperor to, to do his thing. And the emperor at times uh, complied with the pope, and at times he didn't comply with the pope. When he didn't comply with the pope, the pope had two very powerful uh, tools in his arsenal or tools in his toolbox. One was excommunication. And he was like, fine, I'm just going to excommunicate you. Well, that caused all kinds of problems for a king of a, of a Catholic country. And if he didn't do that, then the Pope also had this thing called the interdict, which is where the Pope would just, would just forbid uh, the Lord's Supper from being taken in an entire country. He would say, fine, you, you may not take the Lord's, the Lord's Supper or the, the Mass. You may not celebrate the Mass in your country. And the reason that was a problem is because of their horrible view of the Lord's Supper, which is that it's a re-sacrificing of Christ. It's a re-sacrificing because, you know, because of all these new sins you've committed, you need another sacrifice of Christ. And so uh, if you take that away from someone, that's horrible. I mean, so, and, I mean according to their theology, that, that meant you were, you were potentially going to go to hell just because you couldn't take the Lord's Supper again to wash your sins clean. Very powerful tool of persuasion that the Pope had. So he wouldn't do that all the time, but Popes definitely did that in history. So when you get to, um, you know, like the 11 and 1200s, that's when you get uh, Popes uh, playing that card fairly often, and the Emperor's not having uh, much ability to do anything about that. All right, so we fast forward, we get to the 1300s, and I just bring up one guy because he represents uh, a stream in the Catholic Church at this time, John Wycliffe. So at this time, everyone's Catholic, right? You don't go to the, oh yeah, I, you go to the Catholic Church, great. I go to the Baptist Church down the street. I like the, I like, I like the preaching better. Uh, that's not what happened. All churches were Catholic churches, right? Um, for all intents and purposes. You had underground situations, but organized churches, you had the Catholic Church. But you did have guys like John Wycliffe. So 1300s, he's an Oxford-trained uh, clergyman. And he had many ideas that we would be very familiar with and excited about. So he really felt like the, the Pope should be a pastor of the people and the priests should be pastors. They should care for the people. They're shepherds of the people. Um, he upheld the, the authority of Scripture in ways like we would. So uh, just as an example, a quote, 
He said, neither the testimony of Augustine nor Jerome, you know, these, these doctors of the faith, neither the testimony of Augustine nor Jerome nor any other saint should be accepted except insofar as it was based upon Scripture. We say, hallelujah, sola scriptura, authority of Scripture. We would, we would amen that. And he opposed transubstantiation. He thought that was a terrible idea. You, you sometimes had this thing where guys in England felt a little more freedom uh, to oppose the, the, the Pope way down in Italy. Something about that, the Mediterranean uh, Sea right there, or the uh, uh, English Channel right there, they, they, felt, they just felt a little safer. And the king, and as we know, the king in England didn't always uh, comply with the Pope. So they had some protection. But there were those guys. So we don't want to think of the Catholic Church as this monolithic thing. Everybody believes in the same thing and does the same thing, because that, that would not be true. One thing uh, interesting we don't want to miss about the Catholic Church, and this is all the things that were put in place by the Roman Catholic Church that actually, in a sense, created the Reformation. And if you take these things away, there's, there's very likely not a Reformation. And so by, when I say that, I mean things like the medieval university system. A lot of universities started in the Middle Ages. My, my college, Kenyon College, did not. It uh, was in the 1800s, actually. But there's a lot of like, colleges like Oxford started in uh, the 1100s. Cambridge started in the 1200s. These are old institutions, the medieval institutions. And so this, uh, what happened was you had um, priests needed to be educated in canon law. Catholic law was so complicated that needed, priests really needed to be educated to understand it. Not, not necessarily the Bible, but just the, the Catholic law. So typically that was done by cathedrals. Guys would go to a cathedral school, they'd be trained. But then the number of priests needed outgrew the cathedrals. And so they started these universities in various cities around, uh, around Europe. And those, those universities uh, had a high view of education, um, uh, actual texts, reading original texts. And so as, as time went on, they more and more got excited about texts. We want the original texts. And so this, this passion to go back to the Bible was there before the Reformation was there. And so as guys are turning to the pages of the Bible and the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, through this university model, they begin to see things and they begin to think things. And so, so you have that going on. And so just as an example, so in 1516, Erasmus, it was a, it was a Catholic scholar, Erasmus publishes a Greek New Testament. You know, the year before uh, uh, Luther's 95 Theses, Erasmus, a, a very strong Catholic, publishes his Greek New Testament. And there was a huge explosion of, of, of desire to read that and to translate it, actually, into vernacular languages. That had a massive impact on, the, on, on Europe, and especially as, a seeds, uh, as seeds for the Reformation. Things like... How were they reading the Bible? Yeah, great point. So before that, um, you know, this is in the, if that's in the good column, you know, the, the medieval university system, that's in the good column of the Catholic Church. Definitely bad column. They forbade the people to read the Bible in their own language. So for a thousand years, they basically said, no, you, you may not do this because you might interpret it wrongly. That was, ba- that was basically their attitude. And when they say wrong, what we mean is different than us. And so uh, the Bible would be in Latin. So for, you know, for, for those thousand years or so, the Bible would be in Latin. Many of the priests actually didn't even know Latin, and so certainly the people did not know Latin. But somehow, with their view of the sacraments and the Mass, they just felt like, you know, if the words kind of wash over us, it has this magical, wonderful, sanctifying effect. Even though we don't understand any of them, it still has this powerful effect on us. Um, it's a very unhelpful, uh, you know, uh, very unhelpful doctrine at so many levels. Um, and so 
one of the the radical things, and it's the reason William Tyndale was burned. Uh, uh, he was strangled first because he was a, he was a priest, but then he was burned. His body was burned uh, because he desired to translate the, Bi- the Bible into English um, for that crime. That's that's why he was killed. And so throughout Europe, you had all these guys that were were hard at work, um, and sometimes the most significant contribution that they they would make is giving their people a Bible. And, and a lot of times, like with William Tyndale or with with uh, Luther's German New Testament, he was really giving the Germans a language. You know, if you uh, literacy was not really a thing at that time. But when you add this passion for the text, and then the Gutenberg printing press in the 1400s, well, I mean, this is a powerful, you know, the, the kindling is all there, ready for the, the fire from God just to fall upon it. And then the other thing with the, um, uh, just going back to the medieval system, the medieval university system, is it there, there was a way of doing theology that was established and I don't mean necessarily a wrong and a right way, but there was a way of, of going back to previous thinkers and what they said, a way of doing theology, um, and then articulating that in careful, it's oftentimes question and answer types of ways, uh, like with Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. And so when the, when the, when the reformers, many of them who benefited by this, the, those medieval universities, right, the fact that Luther and Calvin were trained at the university level meant that they could have an influence on their culture, which other guys could not. And so they took that learning and that way of doing theology, but they turned it into biblical theology, which changed the world. So then you have the Reformation. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the Reformation. <laughs> um, obviously, in the Catholic Church, that was, uh, that was, that was a big deal. So I, w- I was listening to a guy um, talk about Vatican II, and he said the problem wasn't the documents. The problem was the implementation. And so he said, you know, kind of like uh, the Lateran, uh, Lateran V, one of the councils, uh, Lateran V. He said, yeah, the the the, the documents were 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 um, were right, but then you had this thing called the Reformation. So the implementation was just a little bit off. Um, for us, though, that was uh, into into darkness, showing the light of God. So the Catholic response to the Reformation uh, was was diverse. I mean, there was a lot of excommunication and killing going on. But theologically, you had the Council of Trent in the 1500s. So 1545 to 7, 1551 to 52, 1562 to 1563. Uh, so, um, you know, by that point, well, I won't say what else has happened, but a lot has happened. And this is a lot of the things that we think of as Catholic doctrine are codified there. So things like um, all interpretations have to be in accordance with, quote unquote, the Holy Mother Church. So you may not speak or teach, actually even believe anything contrary to the Holy Mother Church. Things like original sin, so paedo-baptism in, in the Catholic Church uh, forgives the guilt and even the power of original sin. So that, that sin that's in you that, that leads to all those terrible things you do, well, paedo-baptism forgives it and it, it actually eliminates the power of it. I mean, there's no, there's no Presbyterian who ever believed that about infant baptism. Justification. Direct quote from Council of Trent, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Justification for the Catholics was was not you being imputed, declared righteous. Justification for Catholics is that you are are changed. And then as you change, you become righteous 
more righteous. And then as you become more righteous, you get to the point where God can declare you righteous because you are behaviorally righteous. So your behavior changes, then you're declared righteous. Whereas the Bible and reformers would say, no, that's not how it works at all. You're declared righteous, and that declaration by God has an impact on your life. And you grow in that behaviors, all those behaviors that make you more and more observably righteous. Sac- uh, transubstantiation was held up in 1547. And so all the, all the key, do- in other words, all the key doctrines, again, uh, are there. We'll fast forward to 1962, uh, still, still Catholic after all these years, you know, has, the, has 500 years of, you know, Reformation teaching changed anything in the Catholic Church? And the answer is uh, no, it hasn't. Uh, so you get to Pope John the 23rd, who he, he becomes Pope in 1958, and he immediately calls for a council. He believes that the, the rise of modernism in the church requires a response from us. Fascinating to think 1962 to 65 is when that, that happens. Fascinating to think of all the things that are happening in the world, you know, in the early 60s, right? I mean, one of the significant things is that there's this wave of the Spirit, again, from California. So Dennis Bennett is filled with the Spirit, speaks in tongues in his church in 1960. Um, So this uh, wave of the Spirit is sweeping across Protestantism and Catholics, actually, in the United States in the the early 60s. Obviously, the 60s is just the 60s, so that's significant. Uh, And then you get the Roman Catholic Church, in some ways, trying to redefine itself, rebrand. We're, we're, we're the friendlier, kinder, more open uh, Catholic Church. No, our doctrine hasn't changed at all. We're still as squirrely as ever there, but we're happier, and we want you to be happy with us. Um, so, for instance, Mary is still, uh, they reaffirmed her perpetual virginity. So not only was Jesus born without her being with a man, but all of the children that she gave birth to were born because she, without her being with a man. Just totally unnecessary view. So immaculate conceptions just kind of followed after the first one. Um, uh, she, was, she was assumed, uh, which meant that uh, when, when her time on earth was finished, she didn't die like the rest of us, uh, normal people. She, she, was actually, she actually ascended to heaven, uh, body and soul, complete. And uh, they even gave her a new title. So they weren't satisfied with her, her sinlessness and all the previous devotion. So we we're going to call her the mother of the church. Uh, she had already been declared mother of God, but now she's the mother of the church. Um, one thing to note is coming out, well, um, so the big thing Vatican II did was it, it gave a, there was a call to uh, be more socially active in the world, have more of an impact on the poor, and even the civil rights movements around the world. So there were some good things that came out of Vatican II, but the, but in terms of us uh, who are Protestants, the doctrines were, ne- were not changed. So the doctrines of the Council of Trent in the 1500s and the First Vatican Council in the 1800s were not changed. They were upheld. Somewhat later, uh, there was another, another document written, Novus Ordo, and that's actually where the Mass stopped to be in Latin only. So it wasn't Vatican II that did that. It was actually this later document that wasn't, didn't have the same authority, but actually had a massive influence. So uh, most Catholic... Churches, uh, well, I don't know what the number is, but many, many, many Catholic churches uh, are not in Latin because of that document. So all the, all the Catholic churches I've ever heard of where the, my friends who are Catholic have gone to, or my, my brother and his, his wife have gone to, or do not do Latin, and that's, that's because of that document. So the modern Catholic church, again, still Catholic after all these years, still a pope. When he speaks ex cathedra, it's a big deal. 
Um, there are a lot of criticisms of whoever happens to be Pope at the time. There are a lot of criticisms of that Pope. So we don't want to think that everyone loves the Pope. They wish he was the Pope and would be the Pope forever. Uh, it's, that's never the case, actually. There's always, there's always a minority party that's unhappy with, with the choice. So that's the Pope at the top. Then you have cardinals who are bishops, but they're kind of super-duper bishops. You have the you have bishops and the, and the archbishops who are the super bishops, but then you have the cardinals who are the super, super bishops. Those are the guys who choose the pope. Big deal, big responsibility. So right now there's 241 um, cardinals. And then when you get to the archbishops, so um, a bishop oversees a group of Catholic churches, a diocese, a diocese. But then an archbishop, it seems like uh, it, he, he oversees just a large diocese. So it's, he's not over the bishops, which is what I previously thought. He's just over a larger diocese than a, than a bishop is. There's a lot of bishops. So you know, if you think of you know, how many elders do we have, how many elders are in Trinity Fellowship churches, uh, uh, you know, 50. So there's 652 archbishops who are over the priests. There's 5,000 bishops. Uh, and so when these bishops gather at the Vatican for some significant council, it's a massive deal. So Vatican II had thousands and thousands of bishops who you know, paraded in with their priestly garbs or whatever. So you have um, cardinals, archbishops, bishops, and then you have priests who would be priests in a given church. They serve a parish. And there's about 400,000 priests, Catholic priests, 400,000 priests in the world. Then you get to the actual uh, members of those churches, there's over a billion Catholics, 1.3 billion Catholics. Remember, there's 370 million people in the United States. So three times the size of the United States. Those are the Catholics in the world. And obviously, there's a variety. You know, we're talking 1.3 billion people. There's a lot of variety within those uh, 1.3 billion. But that's a lot of people, no matter how you slice it. It's a well-funded operation because of, uh, you know, <laughs> guilt-driven theology and a monetary way to, to get rid of your sins has a powerful effect on your on your bank account. Uh, so there's a lot of money in the Catholic Church. It might be declining, that's true. It is probably declining all throughout the world. However, there's a lot of money in the Catholic Church. So some things we appreciate about the Catholics. Uh, you really don't want to understate uh, or overstate, whichever it is. You don't want to miss the significance of the, the monastery system, uh, and the reason I say that, there is some weird theology that went along with the monastery system. However, the biblical manuscripts that we, we love and appreciate and have led to the accuracy of our New Testaments today have everything, 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 everything to do with faithful monks who copied and preserved manuscripts in monasteries for their life. So we praise God for that. Um, I'm sorry their theology was weird. I wish it was better, but I do praise God for that that you know, 2,000 years of uh, faithfulness. Um, a lot of their theology, so the Reformers, when they stood against the Catholic Church, did not stand against everything. So we don't want to think that they, they you know, took you know, A to Z of, Ro of Roman Catholic theology and threw it out, we're starting over. That's not at all how it went. So they had, they had a few profound critiques. All, I mean, the, the hugest critiques had to do with how a person is saved. How can a, how can a person be made right with God? They had profound disagreements. And you think of how important that issue is. It affects everything. It affects your worship, your, your devotional life, your understanding of priests. Uh, it affects everything. So that little difference 
was an enormous difference. But they didn't disagree on the Trinity. They didn't disagree on how you basically do theology and how you study um, uh, lots of uh, helpful, profound ideas about revelation, what is natural revelation in, in the creation and what is special revelation in the Word of God. Even though the Catholics could get a little screwy on those things, um, we, we benefit from Catholic theology enormously. So guys like Thomas Aquinas, who was, there's nobody more Catholic than Thomas Aquinas, but he had a huge positive effect on the reformers and, and those who followed in the reformed church. Another thing we want to appreciate is um, they, they have upheld the oddities like priestly celibacy still. They, they still uphold that. However, they believe that a boy has boy parts and a, and a female has female parts and that marriage is between a man and a woman and that any, any sex outside of marriage is forbidden. And there just aren't many people that we can line up with and say, we both believe that, right? So we, and, there, and that's actually a place where the fact that they're so large gives them really helpful, uh, really helpful place for us. You know, you know, if Trinity Fellowship Churches is gonna rise up in the United States and oppose this law and, you know, that the government is, it's, it's gonna do nothing. You know, that's, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. But if the Roman Catholic Church in the United States were to stand up and oppose a law, that actually has a significant effect. So we don't want to miss that. So things like abortion. So when you're, if there's if there's a group that's opposing abortion, uh, there's a very good chance that in that group is is a bunch of Bible-believing Protestants and Roman Catholics, and that's what, and those are the people that are linking arms. Francis Schaeffer had an idea uh, he called co- being a co-belligerent. We're fighting together. We don't believe the same thing, but we're fighting the same enemy together. And that is that's something we don't we don't want to miss that. Um, yeah. So I think um, much to commend. Um, probably though, at the end of the day, if you take the totality of Catholic doctrine, you know, can a Catholic be saved? I think what we would say is yes, despite their doctrine. So if you believe. Uh, uh, everything that the Catholic Church believes, it, you just have to come away with, I, I'm just not sure that can make you a Christian. I, I don't know. There's, there's too many questions there. You know, you, if, you're, if you're believing in Mary as your substitute, or not your substitute, but your, your intervention uh, before, the, before God, how, I don't know what to do with that as a Protestant. However, if despite your doctrine, I, I have a category for, for, for not knowing things fully and completely, and yet you're saved. So that's, you know, I mean, since we all hold to that, right? If not, we're in trouble. So despite their doctrine, yes, can a Catholic be saved? Of course. Um, That's it. Thank you, guys.